Amen. Thank you, Jessica. Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day to all the moms here this morning. We appreciate you. And at the end of the service, uh, we have a little gift for you to honor you. And so on your way out, either in the foyer or outside, um, Betty Wood has arranged for some flowers and a little goodie bag to bless you and honor you this morning. And then Jaden Moss is in charge of the delivery of those items. So moms, be sure on your way out to get your flower and your little treat. I want to, um, before I start my message, just give God public praise in light of Mother's Day. I'm so grateful for my mom. Uh, She will turn 90 in less than a month. And she is still a little spitfire. Um, She brought nine children into the world. And to this very day, if you were to bring an infant or a child into her presence, her eyes will light up. She's that kind of person. My dad will tell you, you nine children. He said, yeah, finally figured out how it was happening. And then we stopped after nine. That's my dad's sense of humor there. Um, And I also just want to give public praise for the mother of my children, Lisa. She is quite extraordinary and a tremendous blessing to me in my life and to our children. So I thank the Lord for you. So Mother's Day, let me just um, open with a little humor. Some second graders were asked five questions about their mothers. So five questions and a variety of answers by second graders. Question number one, why did God make mothers? Um, She's the only one who knows where the scotch tape is, mostly to clean the house. And another answer, to help us out of there when we were getting born. Why did God give your mother? Why did God give you your mother and not some other mother? Uh, Because we're related. God knew my mom would like me a lot more than the other moms would like me. What kind of little girl was your mother? Uh, My mom's always been my mom and none of that other stuff. Well, I don't know because I wasn't there, but I would guess pretty bossy. And the last answer, they say she used to be nice. Fourth question, what would it take for your mom to be perfect? Well, on the inside, she's already perfect. Outside, I don't know, I think some kind of plastic surgery. Another diet, you know, her hair, diet blue or something. If you could change one thing about your mom, what would it be? She has this weird thing about me keeping my room clean. I would get rid of that. I'd make my mom smarter. Then she would know it was my sister who did it to me and not me. And lastly... I would like for her to get rid of those invisible eyes on the back of her head. Yeah, that's wishful thinking. Well, um, I didn't get my sermon information to Michelle in time to print it out. But the title of my sermon, wait for it, is Mother's Day Sermon. 
I didn't know what else, but I do have some points to make. And uh, my first point is the yawning gap of motherhood. The yawning gap of motherhood. What is one of the biggest social changes and perhaps biggest economic crises that we face today? Could it be um, maybe same-sex marriage and the effects that will have, transgenderism and the effects that will have, perhaps health care and the effect that health care is having on our society? Well, these are all very big issues, but there has been another issue that has been creeping up that can have crippling consequences. And so my, my first point, the yawning gap of motherhood, what is that? I've taken that from the first two sentences of an article written by Robert Samuelson in the Washington Post. And it's, I've kind of tweaked it a little bit. He doesn't use motherhood, but today is Mother's Day, so I'm going to kind of modify it into that. So an April posting in the Washington Post, an article by Robert Samuelson. Here's how he opens his argument, his article. Growing up isn't what it used to be. There is a yawning gap between the end of adolescence and the beginning of adulthood. He calls it a yawning gap. And, of course, he's being very sarcastic and facetious as if to say, oh, boring, get on with it, become an adult. This, this gap is unnecessary. Well, the article is actually entitled, For Young Americans Growing Up Isn't What It Used to Be. So what is the gap he's talking about? He says, a period when millions of 20-somethings and 30-somethings have many adult freedoms without all the responsibilities. Social scientists have tried in vain to name this new life stage, but no one should question its significance. And he goes on to talk about um, a... Census Bureau. So a census was taken. And they did a study. And they compared <clears throat> the life experiences of 18 to 34-year-olds 30, today with the goals and thinking and life experiences of um, 18 to 34-year-olds back in the mid-1970s. So this would be a little bit before my time. I was only 10 so you're looking at people a little older than I am who were adults or becoming adults at that time. What did this census report find? Well, it said in prior generations, young adults were expected to have finished school, found a job, set up their own household during their 20s, most often with their spouse and with a child soon to follow. So... That was the expectation. That's what it meant in the mid-70s to grow up. That's when you knew you had arrived. That's kind of what you were aiming for, shooting for, trying to establish in your lives. Doing those things meant you had arrived and you were accomplished. So what do people today think about those as being signs of adulthood? And how does it affect motherhood? He says, or the census of a bureau, if adulthood ever equated with marrying and settling down, 
It doesn't now. The Census Bureau says, asked on opinion surveys, what defines becoming an adult? Americans cite these things. And the percentage, the percentage, percentage I'm offering you is in the extremely important category. I'm not going to go to all the other ones. But as far as what is extremely important to you. Well, it says that completing, and this is from top to bottom, completing school, 61.5% said that is the most extremely important thing you can do to become adult, or that's part of what it means to grow up. Got to finish school. 33.3% said having a full-time job is extremely important when it comes to adulthood. Getting married is a whopping 11.5%. And having a child is 10.4%. So, today's generations, that's the thinking as far as what does it mean to say that you have arrived? What are you aiming for? What are your expectations? What does adulthood look like for you? The most important thing is to have finished school. And then, secondly... To have a job and then kind of on the bottom there as far as how important is marriage and family or bearing children, um, 11.5 and 10.5%. So just before I even go any farther to establish that or to think about that, I want to ask the question, is that biblical? Is that vision of life? Is that mindset? Is that thinking about what it means to be an adult? What life is about in adulthood, is that a biblical vision? Is that what God intends for us in our lives? We have arrived when we finish school. That's the, the most important thing in life. And secondly, to find a good job. And then tailing along or trailing along the, the possibility of marriage and family and children. Some other highlights from this report. By the way, the, the report itself is called The Changing Economics and Demographics of Young Adulthood Between 75 and 2016. Young Americans are delaying marriage in droves. In 76, about 85% of women age 25 to 29 had married. By 2014, their marriage rate had plunged to 46%. So in that short amount of time... About half. Um, the decline was also steep for men at the same age from 75 to 32 percent, which is a little less than half. It goes on to say that more young adults today live with their parents today uh, and more women are in the workforce. Things that we already know. Well, what has triggered such a uh, convulsion in our demographics and our Society. The Census Bureau will not tell you that, of course. They just say, here are what people saying. This is the way it is. But they don't even try to tell you why. But Robert Samuelson will take a stab at it. He says there's probably many factors. And I'm sure I'm not telling you anything that you haven't already thought about. But um, the Great Recession, that's in our lifetime. The, the one between that we suffered from just few years back, 2008 to 2010, took a little while to trickle down, trickle down to Nottoway County, but it had a huge effect on people's incomes and it had an effect because people were not getting married because they couldn't find a job and, and make enough money to establish a household. 
So a legitimate thing or a legitimate reason to delay marriage because we do need to take care of our families responsibly. And then, of course, he says also um, more women in the workforce would delay motherhood. Also, there are a lot more people today than in the mid-70s who are pursuing degrees, especially college degrees. So, obviously, that would delay marriage as well. And then he says, but the most powerful factors were probably women's massive entry into the labor force and contraception, which fostered the sexual revolution. Women and men suddenly had choices that had been largely confined to traditional marriage Women could have their own careers and incomes and couples could have be intimate and have children out of wedlock. So just just in in thinking about those statistics, again, my question is, is this shift a good shift, the shift in thinking what life is all about, even in marriage and motherhood? Is this a positive sign? Is it biblical? Is it something that we as believers, as God's children, should be alarmed about. I think the consensus would be that the vision of adulthood and even careers and motherhood and family is not quite today what we find in the Bible. Goes on to talk about a little bit about cohabitation. It's grown more than 12 times than the, than in the mid 70s. 12 times. Meanwhile, births to unwed mothers have also soared. They now represent nearly 40% of all U.S. births. So approximately 40% of the children in the United States that are being born, nearly half are born out of wedlock. Now, this is obviously alarming to me as one who seeks after God and wants to live my life for God and wants to know what God has to say in his revealed word and an understanding that God is the one who designed marriage. He's the one that designed family. He's the one that designed motherhood and fatherhood. And he has this beautiful concept in mind that still works even in a broken, cursed world. It's still what's best, I would say, coming from the mouth of God. And we are in, on the verge of I guess motherhood, for lack of better terms, becoming a yawning occupation. Maybe something that after I get my priorities in life, then if it so happens, marriage and motherhood might come and it may not. And that is alarming to me. Now, fortunately, there is a little hope in the sense that it's not that motherhood is is being absolutely deleted, but So far, more so just delayed, because it goes on to say by the early 40s, by their early 40s, 85 percent of American women have married down from 96 percent in 1976. So it's still very high. And similarly, 85 percent of women have had children down from 90 percent. So it's still eventually in our society, they get there, but it's just delayed. Um. What kind of long-term shifts will this have? You know, we we can't expect to, if if this is God's design, if this is one of those ancient boundaries of society and civilization, we can't expect to play with it or move it without some kind of consequences. Well, Breakpoint's John Stone Street read this article as well, and he had a few things to say 
regarding the consequences. He says, arguably the most consequential cultural shift of the past 50 years is this census that I just shared with you. He gives just two consequences. Um, I'll only list two. Obvious consequences, demographic. Delaying marriage means fewer children, which in turn means fewer workers to support an aging American population. It's not working out well for Japan and China, and it will not work well for us either. And then another consequence, fewer and smaller extended families. Fewer children will have cousins, and if trends continue, their children will have fewer aunts and uncles. The support and social capital generated by extended family networks will become a thing of the past. It's fair to say that more and more of our elderly will become, by necessity, wards of the state. Social capital is, um, is that the idea that family plays and even extended family plays a tremendous role in helping us get established, especially when we're first starting out. You know, it's, it's that wealthy uncle. I don't really know him, Uncle Louie, but he has connections and things and he can help family members out. So it's that extended family. You know, a lot of times we land jobs and so forth through connections, through extended family. So that, that actually is a very powerful social structure that is in place. You know, we need family to care for us. It's no secret. And we're, our culture is facing a lot of other crises, we might say. You know, and the other institutions are certainly there for our benefit. But family is and will remain the core of society. That's the way God designed it. And when it, when it comes to the best health care, one of the crises in our nation today, it's family offers the best health care that there possibly is that you possibly could ever have. The best politic or government governance comes through the family. The best economic stimulus package you could ever have comes through the family and social capital. So the family is, did I say capital? Capital. The family is, is obviously, I think, God's blessing to this world, even in brokenness. It is a tremendous stream of grace from heaven to earth by God. And so there are practical consequences if we try to remove these ancient boundaries. But my biggest concern are the spiritual consequences. My biggest concern is what, what we are thinking about what God has already revealed today. That the spiritual effects on God's design of the family. My, my concern is that, that people are f- making very important decisions about the meaning of life and the purpose of life and the purpose of gender and everything without c- really considering or taking into account what God has already spoken into the world regarding these very, very important subjects. And I have to say, it grieves my heart as a pastor and as a student of the word who obviously doesn't do everything perfect, but at least, I, but, but I know and I strive and as well as you do. And, and it grieves me to think that we are in some sense of the word turning back to the dark ages, for lack of better term, when it comes to knowledge of God. Yesterday morning, I, um, John Wine sent me a few links and interesting things that he randomly does. Uh, and this perhaps this 
link that I got had to do with a, another survey. It's another Barna survey regarding the way people think about God in the Bible, which um, we might call a worldview. It's a worldview survey. Now, Barna is pretty, I'm sure you've heard of George Barna and his surveys and so forth. But um, this is about how Americans actually have a Christian worldview or not. Now, a worldview is the way we think the world works. We look out into it, we experience it, we think about it, we, we know it, and we, come, we draw our own conclusions about what is reality, how life should be lived, and so we all live according to our world view. It determines what's considered good or bad. It's determined what we consider um, evil, valuable, worthless, righteous, and so forth. So it's just how we decide to cope with life. And this survey of the general public revealed that 10% of American adults currently have a biblical worldview. And that pales in comparison to the 46% who claim to have such a worldview. Of course, it's a census, it's a survey, and you have to give or take how much truth it is in it, and how much is accurate. But this survey was actually designed to try to um, purposely be accurate in what people not just believe but live. It was designed so that you couldn't escape saying, "Well, I believe this. This is what I believe about God or the world." But then you're actually not living it. So there were 40 questions and they were doctrinal, theological about God, the Trinity, Christ, forgiveness. But they were also about behavior, you know, is, is lying OK, is cheating OK, adultery, these kind of things. And he found that most almost half Americans assume they had a biblical worldview. But in answering these questions, really only 10 percent of them had a biblical worldview. Barnes says, in developing this instrument, we discover that someone may claim to believe something, but if their behavior does not reflect those beliefs, it's doubtful that they really believe what they claim to believe. He noted, Jesus taught his disciples that the right beliefs are good, but the real measure of where you stand is what he labeled the fruit of a person's life, referring to the product of applying one's convictions. It's real easy for us to say we believe things, but what, how we live is the fruit or the evidence of what we really believe. He continues, the younger an adult is, the less likely they are to have a biblical worldview. Among adults 18 to 29 years old, commonly referred to as millennials, just 4% were what he calls integrated disciples. And that's the term he came up with, those who not only believe it, but actually live it. And we can't be too proud of ourselves if we don't fall in that category because the percentage doesn't rise very high as the age rises as well. So how many people are living according to the revealed word of God? What, how are we drawing our conclusions about the important things of life today? And particularly when we think about the design of family and the absolute beauty of Motherhood and its importance. We, we always, we read the Bible and we see it in our lives today. We always get ourselves in trouble when we cease to care 
about and love deeply what God cares about and loves deeply. We always get ourselves into trouble when our thinking shifts away from God's revealed word. Our, our nature, I know, it wants that forbidden fruit. It wants the things that we are told in God's word that we should not have and cannot have because it is not good for us. And we want to decide what we're going to do with our lives. We want to decide what life really is all about, why we're here. We want to decide what manhood and womanhood is. You know, it's one thing to say uh, that marriage is on hold until I can get a foothold, till I can get financially established. And it's a completely another thing to say that that. The view of marriage that's held in the Bible is now down here towards the ground when it comes to matters of value. Now, that's an alarming thing, especially when some of the very first words that we read in Holy Scripture, the very first chapter are Genesis one twenty eight. God blessed them, so didn't curse them. It's not a curse to do this. This is my favor is with you. My pleasure is with you as you be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and every living thing. That's part and partial of the meaning of our existence. It's God created man. And then here's the cultural mandate. Here's what you are to do. Here's why I created you and all of this. I mean, this is this we are wrapped up in this. And I have yet to read where this cultural mandate has been rescinded. That God has changed his mind. We're no longer to to partner up and take dominion for the glory of God. And we're we're no longer to be fruitful and multiply. Now, Obviously, I'm not saying that every um, every adult has to get married and every woman has to have children because that would be unbiblical. As well, because singleness is a part of God's beautiful economy as well. And it's a gift. And there's a way that singles can impact the world for the glory of God that couples cannot. And the barren as well or the infertile also play a very important part in the kingdom of God. All those things are included there. So this is not one of those messages, I hope, that pits one against the other so that there's just all this tension that all of this is included in the economy of God. But since this is Mother's Day, I thought I would talk about the, the, the topic of motherhood. And this is what we're finding. This is what we see in the culture that we live in. And I just have to wonder, you know, how far off track are we in our thinking? And where do I get the audacity to tell a culture that is is looking at family and marriage and motherhood as something that might just happen if I ever get around to it. Where do I get off to have the audacity to challenge people to think about your priorities and what you value in life as as important? Well, from Psalm 127, I get it from Scripture. Psalm 127.3, God says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, a heritage. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Do we look at motherhood and the ability to produce, to bear children today as a very rewarding thing? Because that's how God looks at it. God loves the idea of marriage and love and family 
And bearing children. I mean, I got pretty excited when my children came into this world. I think God gets more excited to see it, to witness it, to, to watch his plan come into play. And I would just add to that has childbearing and family and marriage. It's not just about us and the tremendous joy and sometimes pain it brings. Do we ever consider that it, it has a higher purpose and that perhaps God delights in children even more than parents do? I mean, there's going to come a time we're told that there's, there's I don't have it all figured out, but there's no marriage in heaven. So whatever during this era of God's pl- biblical plan of redemption, it will come to an end. And those souls that will spend eternity in heaven will be and only be born or brought forth in this era. God knows who he wants to spend eternity with. It's not just about us. God takes tremendous delight in individuals. In the, in the gifts that he has given us to raise. He loves them more than we do. His plan is bigger for them. He just He's a relational God and didn't create us out of me. The, the Trinity lived in eternity past in perfect harmony. But created us out of love. I'm going to invite you into our goodness and our wholeness. And so these children that we bring in are invited into God's goodness, God's wholeness. For eternity. Suffer the little children to come unto me. God loves kids. This is, this is a huge... Motherhood is a huge deal. It's just tremendous. And what do we think about it today? How important is it to us? Is the challenge. Titus 2, 4, the Apostle Paul, in speaking to the church, says, Train the young women to love their husbands and children. Yes, some of it comes instinctively and some of it comes naturally and some of it has to be trained. Some of it is a matter of exhortation and discipline and practice. According to the ways of God, Deuteronomy 28, 4, Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle. A fruitful womb is a blessing from God. Now, I realize in one sense I'm preaching to the choir here. But we need to know what God says. and We need to know what, where our culture is and where our culture is headed. What kind of voices are our young ones hearing today? And it personally grieves my heart to think that young Young, precious young girls are here today and their, their dream and, and goal is set on this career that they're going to have someday. And motherhood is, isn't even considered as the epitome or an important thing of matter of life. The second point is the importance of motherhood. As if it could get any more important. But let me go back to uh, this, uh, the practical nuts and bolts. And again, these things are not new to us. Especially here at New Covenant Fellowship. You've heard perhaps the home is where the heart is. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But when it comes to children, infants and toddlers, young children, 
<clears throat> to them, mom is where the home is. Lots of experience, experiments have been done. Lots of observation have been done. I'll, I will share some of those with you briefly. But we need to know that as far as our children are concerned, in these younger years, dad's important. I'm not talking about dad today. But mom is home base for kids. You know, if we play games. We play tag or whatever. And a lot of the games we have, there's a base that you can be. If you, as long as you're touching that, you're out of the game. You're safe. The competition's off. You, don't, you can catch a breather and all this kind of stuff. You, you can't be tagged out with your own, when you're on home base. Mom is home base. Literally, kind of a matter of life and death, home base to our children. And how, do you, how are you going to say that? Well, I'm going to turn to monkeys, if you will. To support the importance of this truth. Because that is where it started, believe it or not. Things that we already know through common sense. So back in the 1960s, a Dr. Harry Harlow did some experiments with monkeys. In the 1960s, we were very steeped in evolution. We were very cold, sterile evolutionists. Very, everything had to be scientific. And the belief of the day was evolution. And that was that we were... Only trying the decisions we made in life and why we were the way we were was just to try to survive and improve our gene pool so that we could continue to evolve. This was a very, it's a very serious thing. Dr. Harlow decided he wasn't so sure about this and he thought, no, I, there's more to it than just the milk and, and the food. I, I'm pretty sure love and comfort and compassion. Everyone needs compassion, we sang. And basically, he's saying, I think there's more to it than just the physical aspect. I think humans need love, compassion, and comfort to progress and develop as they ought. So he did some experiments. It was profound in that day. You can still see them, by the way. He takes infant, if you're an animal lover, sorry. They wouldn't do this today. Um, anyway, they took infant mothers, infant Monkeys away from their mothers. He put them in a cage. Uh, adjacent to this cage is a bigger cage. And in this cage are two man-made mommy monkeys. One of the mommy monkeys is kind of made out of wire. Um, doesn't even really look that much like a monkey. And it's purposely made uncomfortable and cold. And this Man-made mommy monkey has milk where mommy monkeys would have milk. The other monkey has, it is, looks a little more like a mommy monkey, the real thing, and is purposely made to be warm and comfortable and cozy. And so they would, he would take these little infant mom, monkeys away from mommy, make sure they're nice and hungry, open the cage. The little infant monkey runs into the bigger cage, sees two potential mommies. Most of them ran to the mommy with milk. They, they guzzled milk and immediately ran back to the warm, comfy mommy and stayed there and stayed there and stayed there. 17, 18, 19 hours. Stayed there so long that in some cases the doctor had to take them away from the comfy mommy to put them back and give them milk so they would live. So, 
this happened time and time again. And of course, the idea is that some of the monkeys would just as soon die than leave that safe place, than leave that place of comfort. Um, another thing that he did was that if he introduced something scary into their little cage, they ran to the soft mommy every time, every time. So there, there's this link here. That's how important actual love and nurturing is for the development of monkeys. And of course, you know how we do. We do with rats and monkeys and then we move on to humans to, because it's for our benefit. So other Safer experiments, and but mostly observation was done. No, they didn't put babies in cages. That's not where I'm, I'm headed with two fake mommies. Not at all. Uh, so other experiments and observations were done that absolutely support this idea. And again, this t- might be common sense to us, but sometimes we forget about common sense. And so another doctor by the name of John Bowlby later on, drew the same conclusions. He observed some young orphans in a boy's home, um, says that mothers in particular play a huge critical role in our ability to learn, grow, and develop healthy adult relationships. We have a core motivation for love and affection. That's why when we sang Everybody Needs Compassion this morning, I thought, we do. We do need compassion. Literally, we were designed to need it. Simply put, without uh, loving attentive mothers, kids' worlds are rocked and they're off kilter. And they stay, they have the potential to stay off kilter. Something isn't right in my world. And we know this in real life. And, of course, we, it doesn't end there necessarily. Uh, as believers, we know that through the tools of prayer and faith and hope and love and action can bridge this gap to put lives back on solid footing. But that's how important of a role that moms play in children. And of course, in, it plays out in families and entire societies. And there were other uh, experiments done and lots of observation done. The idea is that mom is this secure base and that um, when children know that mom is there, she's reliable When they get scared, she's there to run to. When they need their sustenance, she's there for that. It helps them feel secure and enables them to venture out on their own more instead of being so dependent or attached in an unhealthy way or detached in another in an unhealthy way. So kids need more than food on the table. They need mom's love and care and touch. She's that stable rock, that warm, uh, terry cloth, I guess, place so that our, ch- our children can take a breather at home base and, and not have to fear and not have to worry about being hungry because they know they're safe. And when they're like that, then they can go and take dominion in the world. They got that home base to come back to. And that pretty much plays out for the rest of our lives now. You've heard the expression, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. There is some truth in that. Some truth in that. Moms are that important. And let me just kind of make a little segue here and begin to apply this to all of our lives in a more spiritual way. We all, as humankind, need a safe place. It's wired in us. We need that ultimate place 
We can go where we don't have to fear. It's absolutely reliable. That place that we can go where we know that person has our best interest in mind. We're absolutely going to be taken care of. It's rough out here in this part of the world. But right here is where I can really, really thrive. It's a place where I know I am absolutely loved for who I am. It's my my home base. It's my stronghold. This consistent presence in my life. And where might we find that presence? As I was reading these kind of not a very pick-me-up article to read about the importance of moms and then the evolution and then, of course, our shifting biblical worldview. The same time I happened to read the morning um, devotion of Charles Spurgeon. So with my heavy heart, I kind of read these words. I think it helps put it in perspective as we wind down. He has a habit of just taking a few words out of a verse. He won't, one whole verse is too much to comment on. He likes to just take a few. But Matthew twenty-eight twenty, I am with you always. It is well there. It is well there is one who is ever the same and who is ever with us. It is well there is one stable rock amidst the billows of the sea of life. Oh, my soul, set not your affections upon rusting, moth-eaten, decaying treasures, but set your heart upon him who abides forever and is faithful to you. Build not your house upon the moving quicksands of a deceitful world, but found thy hopes upon this rock, which amid descending rain and roaring floods shall stand immovably secure. My soul, I charge you, lay up thy treasure in the only secure cabinet. Store your jewels where you can never lose them. Put all in Christ. Set all thy affections on his person, all your hopes in his merit, all your trust in his efficacious blood, all the joy in his presence, and so you may laugh at loss and defy destruction. Remember that all the flowers in the world's garden fade by turns. And the day comes when nothing will be left but the black, cold earth. Death's black extinguisher must soon put out your candle. Oh, how sweet to have sunlight when the candle's gone. The dark flood must soon roll between you and all you have. Then, wed your heart to him who will never leave thee. Trust yourself with him who will go with thee through the black and surging current of death streams. Who will land you safely on the celestial shore and make you sit with him in heavenly places forever. Go, sorrowing son of affliction. Tell your secrets to the friend who sticks closer to a brother. Trust all your concerns with him who never can be taken from you, who will never leave you, who will never let you Leave him, even Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lo, I am with you always is enough for my soul to live upon. Let who will forsake me. No matter how good or disastrous our childhood was, no matter how good or disastrous our parenting was or is, this is something that we all share in common, that we need We have a need for that home base. We have a need for God. We have a need for Christ that is bigger than any 
need that we find in our families. And we have a Christ, mothers, fathers, children. A Christ that we can turn to who can turn ashes into beauty. A God that we can turn to with all of our secrets. Our, deeper, our deepest hurts and pains. Unfulfilled desires and dreams. And turn to Him. A God that we can turn our lives over to His grace and live with tremendous conviction regarding the promises of His Word. Family fails us. Even good families are not perfect. And there are hurts. And there are secret sins. But there is that home place where we can be nourished and develop as God intends for us to be developed for His glory. So the encouragement is for all of us to come to Christ. For all of us to find our safety free of fear. To be nurtured with our Father, God. He is our Creator And He is there for us. We were created to run to Him, to find our delight in Him. And He is our rock. And that is why we build upon the rock at New Covenant Fellowship. I just want to say that I am very grateful to God for this place. And I pray by God's grace that New Covenant Fellowship will always make a big deal out of motherhood and children. Because God makes a big deal out of it. And I think we will find God's favor and grace as we continue to agree. And not just say we believe, but live out God's word in our very midst. I am very grateful for the families that we have here. For the mothers that we have here. And because of the job that you have done. Some of you still have kids on your hip. You haven't sent them out. Some of you have long ago sent your last child out into the world, but because of your love, because of your safe place, they are able to go out and take dominion for God's glory. God loves motherhood. He made it. And so we delight in it. Happy Mother's Day to you guys. Have a blessed Mother's Day. May God bless the preaching of His Word.